Once again, it's time to dip back into the vault for a webcast that I think will work as a podcast. Rob Diker is an industry veteran who has seen it all in his career, all except for perhaps a pandemic. These are unprecedented times, and well, Rob has taken a LinkedIn to share his ideas on how to lead through tough times. He's put together some tactics and some strategies, and along the way, has come up with some really colorful analogies that, well, just have to be heard. Come join Rob and I as we talk about leadership. For me, I think this session is perfect for those in management positions at publishers and solution providers. And it'd also be probably helpful if you ever have any dealings with the Yakuza. How about this? Let's just start. It's time for BeelerCast. Hey everyone, thanks and welcome for, for joining. I'm going to start a different spot than my, my first fall start. So my name is Rob Beeler. I see a, a number of people I, I don't know. Thanks for, for joining in on this, this particular webcast, this discussion. As you can see, I set it up as a meeting. That means, sure, keep your mics muted, but when it's time for a question, go ahead and, and turn on. Let me know if you're going to be asking a question just to keep our kind of flow together. And at the same time, this is a small enough group that there's no reason we don't crowdsource some of these com- these conversations and topics. I mean, obviously, a lot of this is going to be driven by conversation with Rob. To give you an idea of, of who I am and, and why I do this, so Rob Beeler, I, most people know me from my ad monsters and Everything I've done done on that front for now 11 plus years. But as Beeler Tech, I like to create additional content and conversations I'm not hearing elsewhere. And what kind of drew me to this was Rob's article where it wasn't just, gee, how do you lead through a pandemic? But like, how do you lead through survival mode? And I thought that that like cut through a lot of the positioning that so many people take on. And I've known Rob, you know, I... Rob, I'm even trying to think of when I, we met. Yeah, I think it was ads.com day. I mean, it was it was back in New Orleans. I think it was, wasn't it New Orleans ad monsters with the, uh, we, we dug out all the lead, the uh, lead infected soil. Yes. yes the, see, that's such a, that's, see, that's how you and I, this is why this is like the, the Bob Hope, Bing Crosby show, because like, I don't lead with that New Orleans experience with the lead part of it. But yes, we were going into people's backyards and cleaning it up and who knows what, what things we were handling, you know, with our bare hands. Okay. Yes. So that's, we were helping the community, but thanks Rob for that. See, that's, that's why I want to talk to Rob about this stuff because, and I put a link to his article in here and I, and again, all I'll do is set the stage of Rob, I want to kind of hear what you're up to, but like the, the idea here is just kind of explore this particular direction. So Rob, yeah, we met met a while ago, but I'd love to hear what you've been up to, what you're focused on, and, and so forth, so people know why you're here. Sure. So uh, thanks, Rob, and thanks for everybody joining. Yeah, so you know, I, I've been in the performance digital marketing space since you know late 2000. Been in a number of different types of companies. So if you if everyone's familiar with the Lumascape and all the little kind of yellow boxes on the Lumascape, I've you know had senior leadership roles in, in many of the the major boxes on the escape itself. So very good understanding of how everything flows all the way through, you know, and I think, and I always say it is, you know, if when a financial or, or Wall Street analyst looks at the uh, RTB ad space or programmatic ad space, they tend to assume it's like regular economics, right? Where everything's rational. And the reality is if you've been in this space, it's like Dan Ariely's like behavioral economics, like, you know, the stuff doesn't necessarily make sense, but, but that's, it does make sense if you actually understand the motivations and how people are getting paid and how everything kind of works, whether it's actually the people processes or the actual technology talking to each other. So fast forward late last year, or September last year, I took over as new CEO of iView Digital, which was a performance video solution. We just recapped the company and I had come in to kind of, you know, kind of take it from the recap state and, you know, grow it. And we were doing, you know, great from a revenue perspective, but, you know, as I said to the team and it was kind of, it was kind of an incredible story, but, you know, literally on my, I think 90th, hundred day, I had to tell all 85 people that they were going to lose their jobs at the end of the end of the year, you know, probably one of the most awful days of my career and top Imagine. worst day. I will, I will say amazing team there. But yeah, so now I'm, I'm basically I have a, a back to consulting. And prior, I had a consulting practice after Rubicon, very focused on you know ad tech, performance marketing, and everything around strategy, uh, operational excellence, data driven decision making, and these are all kinds of techniques that I've used over my 
you know, my, my long career now, uh, I'm realizing <laughs> that I've been doing this for a long time, but the key thing if you, I think it was the second week I was there, we, we went on an offsite with the executive team and we kind of reprioritized the, the product roadmap because I, that's one of the things I find in, in, in ad tech, it's really tough because you have, and, and I'm sure this goes outside of ad tech as well, but you know, you, you get one thing that works really well. You do those, you know, one or two things really, really well. And then all of a sudden, you know, sometimes organizations will think they can do 20 things at once really, really well. And that kind of exponential growth of focus, things you're working on. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything kind of grinds to a halt, right? So product delivery slows down, revenue eventually slows down, all these kind of bad things occur. So when we went back to the roadmap, it was, you know, I had kind of a certain lens that I use and, you know, now that I've wound down the company and, and thankfully, I think almost every employee got a job, That's great. Uh, at least that wanted a job by you know, end of January, which was great considering the timing. But I said, hey, let me put this down into writing how I'd be thinking about this if I was leading the company at that moment in time. But the same lens we used because we had you know, a certain amount of cash and we had to stay focused. And, and you know, at the end of the day, it's like all these techniques, they're applicable whether you're you know, in not, I would just say you might adjust the buy each of them as time goes on. Got it. Got it. Well, no, and thank you for that, Robin. So, and one thing I'm going to suggest that you and I do is break up our, like, I'm going to have you go on long rant at like long periods of time, just because I can tell the video quality cuts out after a little bit on your, on your connection. Okay. So, but thanks for that. Right. Cause I think that you even just kind of hit an underlying theme there of, of when you're operating just as, as normal, right? There's a tendency to just continually just grow in terms of like all these other things you can do. You know, 2020, you know, is its own year here. I, you know, I, you, you're great at these analogies and we're going to touch on some of them. You're going to have to actually explain some of them to me, Rob, and your, and your fascination of the Yakuza sure. as well. But like, I'll give you my references, like the Kobayashi Maru scenario in Star Trek. Like, how do you get through 2020? Like, are you supposed to? Like, it doesn't, you know, it's it's not an easy scenario to necessarily win, but that's where I liked, again, where you kind of broke it down into like survival, you know, mode of, of thinking about this and cutting things to the core and doing it well. And so you broke it into three, three parts, right? And, and one was around, you know, mindset. The next was recategorizing and getting your roadmap. And then order of impact. And so I kind of wanted to follow that same kind sure. of theme to it. And I put the link in the chat for anyone that's, that uh, has not, not read the article. So you start with, you know, remind everyone that if you make, you know, their job or task go away, that you're going to help them find a new job or task. And it sounds again, like it sounds like you did that for your prior company. That seems to be, to be something where that's a moment put upon you or true recognition of where the company is when you start to have to get there, right? Is there, talk, yeah, talk yeah, a little bit about that, right? Yeah, yes and no. So, so my normal way of saying that, and, and I didn't write it in the article because it's too easily taken out of context. And plus we're also in you know COVID and people are losing their jobs. But my normal statement is, and I'll say this in all hands, uh, and I see Alex, Alex R is there and he'll, he'll vouch for me, is you know, I want, if you make your job go away, or tasks go away, I will find you a new job. If I make your job go away, that may or may not be bad. And I, you know, and you say like a, but the reality is, is that because these companies grow so quickly, a lot of manual things pop up and we do things in totally suboptimal ways. And then you also combine that with the fact that a lot of companies don't have really good onboarding, really good on training. Managers, for the most part, are not really that well trained classically anymore, right? So, yeah. so we have all these things. And if you think of like the uh, employees, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's like, do you know what your job is? And or do you know if you're doing a good job at it is pretty important, right? And then the next step would be like, do I have a career path? Like, how do I get to the next step? Is that clear? You know, obviously believing the company should probably be on there somewhere and its mission. So because you've got this situation where some of those things may not be in an optimal state, people are nervous that if they do make their job go away, like they know they're, a lot of people know they're doing stuff that's highly repetitive. They're like, oh man, I can't believe I'm doing this. Right. But they just do it because they're like, I will, if I raise my hand and say, this is dumb, I shouldn't do this, or we can automate it. 
they're afraid they'll get fired or, you know, who knows? Because you have to, if the managers and the leadership of the company aren't repetitively saying like, look, like operating leverage, right? You want to drive operating leverage. So if like half of your job can be automated, let's automate it. Cause I probably got a list of a hundred more things that are more right. higher value activities that I could put you on. And I think that's one thing, right, for for employees to understand is that going and hiring someone new is harder than it is to take someone that knows the company, knows some of the culture, in fact, has been doing a task that if you can automate that, there's the next level of, hey, now that we have this automated, we can do more, right? And that's, and and again, that takes trust, right? That takes, that's take, takes trust that uh, they're, they're, you know, you, you operate that way. You may not have at this time in 2020 the ability to demonstrate that over time anymore. Sure. But I think that there's an aspect of like, I think people, you know, I mean, that's one thing I would also throw to that is your frankness with the company, like how you talk in an all, you know, again, I'm, I'm putting you into a scenario here, right? Sure. You know, but that scenario is if you're managing a company right now in 2020, you're looking at the financials. You're looking at where you are. There's not investment coming to save you, right? How direct are you talking to the team all the way up? You know, what is, what is that conversation? Are you cheerleading? Are you, here, I'm going to draw numbers and they're going to be in the red? What, how, do you, how do you do it? Yeah, I mean, so I think you have to adjust the message based on the audience, right? So I think when you're you know, as CEO to the direct reports, like there's gonna be a certain level of transparency in the C-suite upper level that, that may not be down to the lower level because the reality is, is like, I don't necessarily want to burden everybody with, with, with facts or data or potential outcomes that they can't directly affect, right? Because that can just create more craziness, right? right? right. So like my, my key focus is like, hey, let's focus on, you know, important KPIs of the business. Hey, if it's in the red, it's in the red, right? Like I, I think sometimes people think that, you know, companies are like, you know, it's like the CIA and all the data is compartmentalized and nobody knows anything. Like I, I venture a guess that like 99% of people on this call would say, yeah, uh, when something really bad is happening in the company, everybody knows already. So when, when you say, okay, like we're not going to, you know, put up that the numbers are in the red and we need to turn them around because we're afraid that people might find out that we're in the red, like that stuff will trickle out naturally. So you have to kind of you know, I, I just kind of embrace it. Now you don't have to go into the you know crazy level of detail where it doesn't work for the majority of people or they can't digest it. But I do believe in that like radical transparency. And that's why, you know, almost every place I've been at since advertising.com, you know, we set up a daily war room, which is literally like looking at the numbers yesterday versus the day ago versus seven days ago. And it's always tracking towards a goal. So, you know, that, that kind of transparency, like, sure, it does get, it, it, it's, it weighs on you. Like when you were behind goal and you just see tracking my goal, it stinks, right? Like it's terrible, but what's the other option? We just pretend that we're not behind goal and we don't have like, we don't act like our hair's on fire to like try to close the gap. Like, right. I'm not sure that's a good outcome either. (laughs) So just as a quick reminder, again, with this size of a group that if there's other thoughts and comments people want to make, love to to add that to it. But you know, Rob's Rob to me is like a wealth of information. So I'm just going to keep going to him until someone else wants to weigh in. There's a part to that though. I think that that's right. That like, you certainly want to have someone that can affect the overall outcome weighed down with like, somehow you're asking them to help save the company. But I do think what is interesting in what you said, and again, this is why I love to elaborate on the article is this idea of getting people's ideas out on the table and get that flow going, even if it means automating my job, right? Or thinking about those particular things. I would say that I've, and as someone who does this kind of thing all the time, you can imagine sometimes I have to coax people into talking and coax people into interacting. We'll probably do it. Rob, how do you get some of these ideas? Like, I guess I feel like there's any, anything in terms of tips or tricks that you use to get people to truly share, hey, there's a big aspect of my job I don't need to be doing if we could solve for that? Yeah. So a couple ways of doing that, right? So normally when I onboard at a company, I will interview every single person that's in my org, right? So mm-hmm. you know, at IVU, I interviewed everybody in the company. 
for 30 minutes and I ask a, a standard set of questions, right? So nobody goes to the next person and be like, what did Rob ask you? And then someone's like, he didn't ask me the same questions. They're the same set of questions for everybody. And one of the questions is, is like, what would you, if you were in my shoes, what would you be focused on? And depending at the level of the person, like sometimes you'll get some amazing little nuggets or sometimes you'll get strategic advice. Like, so it varies greatly. Sometimes you get the person has no advice, right. but you get these little stories and, and, and the other, so, so that's one piece, right? And then the next piece is I like to use stories, right? And I learned this from, you know, watching, you know, Mike Kelly in action when I was at AOL, like Mike Kelly, some amazing stories, and they always have some reason for why he's telling them. So by having your own little, you know, toolbox of stories to kind of explain situations to say, hey, this is why this is important or why I want you to share this information, you know, it gets people excited, right? So for example, at iView, I, I met with an integration, one of the technical integration people that integrates the advertisers. And he's probably two weeks into the job. And I said, you know, what would you focus on? Well, I don't know what I, he's like, I, I don't know the CEO job, but he said, hey, you know, I, our, our integration document we send to customers is like 40 pages long. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, that sounds too long. And he was like, yep, I got it down to two pages and I think I'm going to be able to get it down to one. You know, because I look at it as like, you send it to a client, who knows who's getting it to the client. They might turn to the wrong page and like, you know, launch a nuclear missile or something really bad. So like you have a bunch of those stories and you kind of share those and it gets people to open up. And I look, and I think the other general challenge about getting people to share that information is, and, and I think this happens at venture-backed companies, is you're, you're, you know, you're growing top line like crazy. You're raising more rounds of funding. You keep growing, keep going, grow as fast as possible. And this lens in the company becomes all around revenue. And look, revenue is king, let's be clear, because mm-hmm, without right. revenue, you have nothing flowing through the whole stack to pay people. But because there are these huge numbers, like 40% year-over-year growth, 50% year-over-year growth, the, the little ideas tend to get ignored, right? So either it's like, you know, someone might have this great idea that just makes some process 5% better. Ah, we don't have to worry about it because uh, we're growing so quickly. Focus on growth. So, so part of it is you have to kind of reorient people and say, look, every idea matters. We just have to decide how we prioritize them. And then the other piece too, to that point is sometimes these things will never make it, you know, when you productize a, a product, um, uh, prioritize a product roadmap, you know, there's the Mendoza line, which essentially is like, when you're below that line, you ain't getting any product or engineering love. You know, that's the other problem. A lot of stuff falls behind that line and no one ever thinks about bringing that back up to the line, even though it's critical stuff. So if you think about it, like when you're looking at a product roadmap for a company, there's probably like a pillar of new product development, right? There's tech debt, and you know, really to oversimplify it, you know, existing and then probably just the tuning, operational excellence, automation. And many times, like you literally the only focus is on tech debt, new products, and the existing platform. And that last column is just totally ignored. Right, right. And that's you know, it's interesting because I one of the things that I I'll put this to you. I, I don't know if I, I apply it to the publisher world, which is of course where I'm focused. You might tell me with your experience, uh, this is not unique. Right, but I, I kind of think of the out the way that publishers are structured, and I think that that structure gets in their way of thinking like true digital companies. Right, there's, you know, and almost every decision now is multi-departmental. Right, if you think sure. about the traditional silos, and you're going like, oh wow, this is going to touch data. Well, now legal, marketing, like suddenly everyone gets involved, and suddenly everything kind of comes to a grinding halt. Right. And so the one thing that I kind of have always thought about knowing that that's an issue is that at some point I know it's going to rear its ugly head is spending the time while you can trying to figure out that that cross departmental, whatever that is to create some kind of glue so that when it comes time to actually come together, you know, so you, you do it with a war room on a daily basis. And that, right. that makes a lot of sense, right? But there's also just that when everyone leaves the war room, did everyone just leave with their own agenda and what they heard and off they go to only come back the next day and go like, wait, I thought we were doing this first, right? So right. I think that there's a like those particular pieces. So one, testing my theory with you, is that a publisher? I mean, I, I'm sure other companies have this issue, but like the silo piece of, of how departments are set up as being the barrier to moving forward. Do you see that elsewhere? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Now it might be slightly, a slightly different angle, right? So if you think publisher, you have people that have, you know, gone from purely print to digital 
and, you know, goals and roles aren't aligned. So that also creates a you know giant kind of cluster, you know, and a lot of suboptimal interpersonal interactions. But, <laughs> but I think like, if you look at like a tech company, uh, you know, there you have issues where, you know, sometimes product won't be talking to, and I'm not specifically talking about Ivy, but I'm saying just in general, a place I've been at like product isn't getting customer requirements or, you know, they're putting something together and never sits down with the operational teams to figure out like, Hey, how do we launch this? Right. So, so you have those types of things, which then cause things to literally fall over upon launch. So yeah, you see, it's just, it's just slightly different, right? And in some cases, people just don't know what the right process is. Just different characters. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's one of the things that I find and always love talking about is the, the gap between departments and what that costs a company in terms of actually, actually performing on things. Last thing on this part, because I want to start to get into to again sure. some of the the roadmap, which is, yeah. So you're going and you're interviewing everyone in the company, and you're creating this, and you're getting all that feedback. Do you have any kind of collection process and or way that you are working through that? Because again, it's again, I I do this around conferences. Someone will throw one little idea, and I'm like, eh, that's not that's not what I need right now. Sure but I do not want to lose it. So how do I collect that and, and make sure to process everything? Yeah, so there's so there's two parts. So when I do the general onboarding, I'll put all those notes together and I tell everyone, look, I'm going to aggregate these up. I'm not going to say so-and-so said X, but I'm going to pull the themes out and then meet with the departmental heads to share the themes, get validation there. And then I share it back to the entire organization and get feedback from them. I want I want them to know that I heard. And look, I might say, look, this is a problem, but let's be fair. We're not going to, I'm not, I will fix this, but we're not fixing this tomorrow. Like, this is not like, I'm a big believer in also being very, very direct to say, like, this is important, but it's not that important. We'll do that Mm -hmm. later. And I think people appreciate that versus having someone say, yeah, 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 we'll work on it. And then like, you know, nothing ever happens. You know, that's pretty disappointing. But when you're in the process of trying to extract all those ideas, normally have smaller team meetings with, you know, usually department head, you know, whiteboarding sessions. There's different ways to facilitate that with stickies or a spreadsheet. And it's like literally just, you know, and sometimes you can just kind of force the issue of saying, hey, just come up with the top three. Like no one's going to grade. It's not, this is not a grading thing. No one's going to get fired if they don't have great ideas, but like at least come up with three ideas, right? You are CEO of your job. If you had to make a strategic decision of like the top three things, your wish list, what are they? Right. And then, then once you have that in like, you know, Google Doc or whatever, you can then start to sort it make it thematic. Cause the thing is everyone will say it slightly differently. So like you'll have to, you'll see recurring themes and then you also get that kind of voting process as well. Cause you see how many times it shows back up again. Yeah. And that gives right, you an idea right. of how important it is. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It might, if, if time permits, I might circle back on that just in terms of strategies around that. But I think sure. there's some other things I want to kind of move forward, but you know, there, there's some pieces to that. So, so then you kind of part two, you start talking really about kind of the roadmap and kind of the categories around it. And so there are a couple of things. This is where you start the, the, the Dikert isms start to, yep. to start to pop up in true form. So automation, just, you know, I've heard of that one, right? I've heard of that okay. category. Background radiation revenue. Now, I didn't go to school for business. Going to say first time I've ever heard the term. So Rob, yes. please enlighten me. Yeah, so I did not learn that in business school, but <laughs> but I, I it, the concept is you think about it like uh, you know that if you fly airplanes, you get more radiation than if you you know just stay on the ground, right? Based on how high up you are in the in the atmosphere. But the concept is everyone's getting exposed to background radiation right now. If you're downwind of Chernobyl, it's probably far worse than like if you're just sitting like you know somewhere in the U.S. at the moment. But the the concept is if you do something you just make more money and you don't have to sell another customer anything, right? So like, I love things that I can put on the roadmap and prioritize that just make more money and I don't have to call a customer or a partner or anyone and say, will you buy some more? Will you turn this on? So examples of that in the RTB space would be like getting better match rates so you can find users and and, and go after them. It could be better optimization algorithms. So now like, you know, if you have uncapped budgets and your, your your ROI performance improves, like the clients can spend more money. But but it's this concept of like, hey, is this something where I'm going to have to spend six months upselling a customer on it? Or is this stuff that like literally, now maybe if you just have to call them and say, flip the switch, that, that I'll right, still put right. that in the same category. 
but it's literally stuff that like a, a customer would have to be insane to say, no, I don't want that. Or you can just turn it on and they love it anyway. And they, or they may not even know about it, but everyone makes more money. And it could be background radiation margin too, right? So maybe your revenue doesn't change, but you have more margin because you, you know, did something that improves that, you know, maybe it's bidding strategies, who knows? Yeah. So it, it, I got it. I got it. Right. So, you know, again, if I'm, it's, and I like, again, the idea that putting people in a position to think about what you have to do without calling the client that is going to essentially generate more revenue or more margin is, is a pretty cool kind of approach to, to thinking about understanding your business about what it takes to make another call. Right. If you're, again, you have to have a business by which you can do that and structure it that way. If you're not thinking that way, you should be right. In other words, you know, Hey, when I'm making you successful, I get paid more is a great way to, to be, to be, you know, configured in that way. So that as you just bring them more business, you, you, you reap that benefit. All right. That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. One of the things that you have in that kind of statement, you know, your statement in that is like, I always tell my teams, something is always broken at all times and the winners just find and fix it, you know, faster. Yeah, which I think is is a good a good strong quote to to think about, especially in our space. Yeah, right? no, I mean, my my guess is it probably applies everywhere else. But what I found in in ad tech, especially when you know, because I was at you know ad.com back when it was like network and tags, but now in this RTB space where you have like a many to many coming together in a in a programmatic you know computers talking computers fashion, like I think sometimes people just tend to assume because computers are talking to each other, nothing can go wrong. Right. And, you know, (laughs) in the space like that's probably not a good assumption. So what I explained to people is like, look, I mean, every successful place I've been at is, is that, you know, you, you should automatically assume that there are broken things and you should be actively looking for them on a regular basis. Now, does that mean looking for every little itsy bitsy thing? Probably not, but you just have to have that assumption. Like stuff could be broken. And if you find it and fix it faster, that usually will, make a huge difference. And I think also to that point is it's operational excellence. So I always get very nervous when you have like companies where they're like, okay, we're unsuccessful running this business or we run it in mediocre fashion, but we're going to go start making electric cars. And I'm like, wait a second. Like if you can't execute your core business that generates your revenue and your margin today in an operationally excellent way, you may not have permission. And I'm not sure how successful you're going to be with that, that innovation pivot. Now, I'm sure there's like one out of 100 that make it, but right, right. in any case, they don't. Yeah, that's interesting. No, you, you make me think of the old days, you know, and this is again, where I think like an operations, ad operations mindset can, can actually be very helpful, right? And I remember the old days of, you know, again, we saw a traffic spike Right. And one of the websites I worked with long ago was like, let's send out a press release. And I was like, well, I don't actually believe the number. And, and like, you know, like suddenly you hear that, like, I'm like the Debbie Downer of this thing. But at the same time, I'm the one that's looking at the numbers and it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, poke into it and you find, ah, there is a problem here. Thank God we didn't go out for that press release around traffic, you know, back when people did that. I mean, I yeah. guess they still do, but there's like maybe four companies that do that. But like, you know, <laughs> everyone else is too small to measure to get a press release out of it. But there's there's a part there of like continually questioning the numbers is is a, at the end of the day, something they'd sit there and really uncover something about your business that otherwise is just a hidden secret that's gonna, going to hit you. Well, well, think about it. You You have two machines talking to each other and then there are humans controlling both of those machines, some of which work in your company and some of which do not. And how many times do people make mistakes in your company operating the machines? Right, right. It happens. So you also should assume that it happens elsewhere. So one of the questions that came up, and Azir, by all, Azar, by all means, if you want to turn your mic on, or otherwise I'll, I'll just start to read this. He says, I think one of the challenges we ran into regarding looking for things to fix is that the scope is so large once you have a, multiple years of features in a system. Good point. Uh, we've been moving towards creating alertings around our data to help us with this, right? So in other words, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, you start adding features, right? In other words, if you're not operating optimally the way that you've been talking about, you do have features and you have scope creep and you have all that kind of stuff. Then it becomes oh, sure. even more hard to find where the problems are, right? Yes. Right. And like, towards that, like, you don't know what could be broken and, you know... 
when you're just looking at your top level KPIs, you might not notice that there's a smaller issue hidden underneath the hood. So yeah, we've been trying to get as granular as we can with the data and therefore create like alerts around, hey, this random little thing suddenly changed. Is this something we need to look into? Is this something we can, to your question, we can question the data once we, once we know there's something to look at. Yeah. So you kind of touch on, and Rob, we could probably have a whole separate webinar just on data-driven management and decision-making, but do you bring up the, fall- I, I'll bring up the, my thing as the fallacy of alerting systems, right? So I can't tell you how many companies I've worked at where people are like, we're going to build an alerting system that's going to tell us when things are broken. And right. I'm like, and, and guess what? Like for that to actually work, you actually have to know all the things that could break. And to your point, it's very hard to know all the things that are going to break, right? So, so it's kind of this like circular reference in Excel that like, you know, is going to cause the little beach ball to spin around on your computer. So I, the key thing there is that goes back to those reports and you have to de-average the reports. Just looking at top, top line KPIs, you have to say, all right, what is the right level to go down to where we're going to capture 80 to, you know, 80% of the things that could go wrong. And, and then also I think when you're designing stuff, like I always push the teams, like how are we going to monitor to make sure this is actually working? Cause I think a lot of times things are built and no one builds in or a few people build in monitoring in key points of whatever the process is or how the product works to understand like how do we know this is working so if we have to troubleshoot it explain to me how we're going to troubleshoot it if it's not if it doesn't work when we turn it on and when someone can't explain that to me i get very nervous yeah my new i'm going to try to make this kind of a catchphrase right is uh just throw some machine learning at it right why that sucker fly you know just because you're you're right. Like the alert system can be just as broken as the system it's trying to to to, to measure. So it is diving down into that. I think those are some good points. Those are some yeah. Good points. So going down through your categories that you had in the article, of course, I know hard cost savings. That's that's a pretty straightforward, and you know by all means elaborate. But then we hit soft cost savings and your fuberdossel. Fuberdossel. Am I saying it correctly? Fuberdossel. Fubar doc. I mean, you created the term, so you get to say how it's pronounced. Okay. Yes. Fubar doc. Okay. Explain to us what that means. So fubar is is you know effed up beyond all recognition, and then boondoggle, you know, is kind of when you go off on some you know stupid journey somewhere with like no mission involved, right? So it's basically putting both of those together into one single thing. So. Yes, and it's really, really broken, and it's like a totally terrible mission associated with there, like clearly no mission, and you're just kind of wandering around the desert. That's that's, that's the, the the gist of putting them together. Got it. Got it goes it. back so, to the stuff I learned from from Mike. Like you know, if you can if you can brand certain terms with your teams so that they start to use it as kind of like a like it becomes a verb or an adjective. Like it's it's a good thing because like it kind of <laughs> it gets people to come together. There, well, we'll we'll see. So, you know, part of my virtual happy hour I have on Fridays, uh, we always identify a term. So the game is this, right? So I give a term and you're supposed to the next week work it into a meeting in, in the appropriate way, but in a way that no one would ever think you would use it, right? So ledger domain, right? Which, you know, slide a hand, right? You could just say like that company is really shady or you could just use a really big term and just watch everyone just go, you know, just watch the panic. So may, maybe I'm not the guy to teach efficiency sometimes, but yes, I like the idea of creating your own, your own term. And I will see if I can make that part of the Beeler tech vernacular, cool. but the, but it is, you use it in a, an area where you are talking about something you already hit on, which were the, the manual tasks, right. And in terms of, again, the way people are operating without necessarily thinking through do I really have to do this? How do I get to that kind of next level and so forth? Can you elaborate a little bit further? The other term on that is, you know, defuckerizing the situation even, you know, yeah. even harder. So, you know, we talk about automation, right? And, and that's like clear, right? Hey, this word, I'm doing a, ma- like I'm trafficker, I'm copy and pasting things between two, like something terribly, you know, should be automated. These are more categories of, you know, it's a process that goes across multiple teams. So a good example is like forecasting, right? So you have a process that can possibly be automated in some instances, but it's also just a poorly designed process or a process with, with bad assumptions, right? So I always tell people like, you know, forecast, if I could forecast accurately in digital media, I would go work on Wall Street because I could make a lot more money trading stocks. And I can't, so I'm still an ad tech. 
So if you think about the ad tech space, like you'll have people that want, you know, sales will say, we need a forecast. It has to be accurate. And it's never accurate, right? A third or too high, a third or too low, and a third are just right. And guess what? You don't know which third is which when you actually hand out the forecast. So, you know, I usually go back to sales and I'm like, I, have, I can give you two forecasts. One that's a stretch forecast, which is a higher probability of me missing it, but the customer is risk loving and it's not a big deal for a customer relationship. Or we will choose the conservative one where we may leave money on the table but the customer is risk averse and that is a better outcome than missing the number. But that's the type of process change where if that's not working correctly, there's these soft costs that occur, which is the drama going back and forth of sales yelling at forecasting. Why is this wrong? People running around with their hair on fire to try to deliver something like it's just, you know, as I said in one of Laura's on the call in her training session for inside sales, I'm like, it's like going into McDonald's and ordering a lobster. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, it's probably not going to show up. Or if it does, like, who knows? Like, so, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, that uh, you just made me think about like 20 different analogies off of that to, that, that could be fun to, to kind of collect. Yeah, I, you know, that's the, that's the part of, shoot, there, there, you know, there's an aspect of it that the other uh, underlying part of the drama behind the scene is watching and listening to salespeople, you know, the, so the people who are going to be client facing, right? Like, again, you want to arm them with what it takes to go out there. And so, by the way, just as a quick correction, because I think Matthew Katz has got it, which is I identified ad ops as being Debbie Downers. We're more the realists, right? Right. Salespeople need a little, they need to be tied to reality, but they're the ones that actually have to go out there in front of someone and say, this is going to be good. Right. Yes. And that's the part that I always feel like sometimes there's a mistake in terms of how companies are organized is this let's talk about all the possible things that could go wrong and how this could blow up after the sale to then go like, but you know what? That's most likely not going to happen. Go sell it. Or if you hear that salesperson going like, yeah, I, you know, you got to create that that energy and that the process by which is to give it to them, ready to go and be like excited about that and and you know can't have them talking you know making stuff up, right? But you got to get them to that point because otherwise all of this work leads to a salesperson going like I really don't want to go in that room, you know they're thinking and this is why I've seen this a lot this year. Sorry, I'm on my tangent, on my tangent, on my tangent at this point, right? But, you know, salespeople are thinking past 2020 and they really don't want to burn their Rolodex. Saying yeah. contacts just doesn't have the same effect as Rolodex, right? But that idea that like, they, they can't go out there and just sell crap just to try to help you get through the year. You got to give them something that's going to sit there and go like, they're going to come back and I'm going to have a happy client and no matter what happens at the end of this, I didn't lose not only my job, but my profession, my career, because I can't ever call on that client again. Right. right? I see that happening with that. So interesting. That was a tangent on a tangent on a tangent, but good stuff, Rob. Thank, Thank you. <laughs> so just kind of wrapping up on some of that, and I want to keep an eye on, on time, you know, one of the terms, one of the things that you you focus on is the new features and the new products. Maybe this kind of ties somewhat to my my tangent. Is you need to study the density, as in how many customers does this feature or product apply to? Yeah, I am curious how you manage that conversation because there is always the client that pays you X, but is so important because someday they could be worth this. Hey, how do you manage that? How do you work for the clients? Say that again. All of my clients are the most important clients. Okay. So, uh, so explain uh, to me density then. <laughs> yeah. So, so the density piece is like, and I've seen this before where, and either it's because you're, you're backs up against the wall or you just don't have good discipline, or at least in my opinion, you have good discipline, is that you know, some, pro, some client will say, I want you know, this feature or whatever, and I'll spend a ton of money. You know, and, and my whole concern there is, is that, you know, a lot of times this takes, you know, I don't know, three months, six months, like or maybe it's a quick feature, but let's just assume it's something that actually takes some significant investment of, of your, your, your engineering and, and product, product teams. At the end, it's a binary outcome. 
right? Like most of these things, at least I've seen, it's like, it's not like the customer maybe said they'd spend 10 and they only spend five. It's usually either they spend or they don't spend at all, Mm -hmm. right? And now you have this thing you just built and there's nothing that engineer and product love more than building stuff that never gets sold. They really love that. If you if you survey all of your engineering departments, they will be like, I love it when we build stuff and it never gets sold and it never gets used. They love it. <laughs> so what I about the density thing is like, like you get you got to put in the practice of saying, okay, great. So this cable company wanted X. All right, now let's go to all of our other cable company clients and you know, not say, you know, this client asked for X, but say, hey, we're thinking about this new feature. You know, what do you think? And I bet you, you'll get five other things you need to change about that to make it better. And it'll probably even make it more sticky with the original person that had the the, the kernel of the idea to start with. So, and and then now you have like, you know, if it's five customers, now there are five binary things happening, binary like outcomes, which is probably better than just having one. Which is interesting when you put that in context of what the other statements you talk, you say, which is kind of avoid product development by committee, which I think what you're, you know, if I compare those two things you just said, sound like they might be in conflict. But the idea is that if you're talking about stuff internally, you you can wind up causing your own problem because you're anticipating what the client is, say, asking for. Yes. But if you're involving the client in that process, Again, your ability to go back and say, I heard you. This is what we're going to do, or this is where it is on the roadmap. You, you potentially have a sale. Yes. Or internally, you're just spinning wheels. And, yeah. and look, I think to that point too, and this goes to the soft cost savings pieces, as you get bigger and, and departments are more formalized, right? Because usually that, you know, those things you were talking about usually don't happen at small startups. But once they're bigger, then part of the executive team's job is to make sure that each of the departments has a, has a, a well-tuned process, right? So a lot of times it kind of like it bounces around things are not parallel path you aren't building optionality in the plan so you know when you first come up with something maybe you should talk to your, your chief privacy officer you know over coffee and just say hey like we're thinking of doing this is there any like you know third rail type things in the subway where you'll like get 10,000 volts if you touch it right mm-hmm. so you do that first and then and you come up with a process that like kind of you know has that kind of incremental development and i guarantee you now it feels like there's more communication going on, and and but I bet you you're going to have a quicker outcome than you would if you kind of do it the traditional kind of waterfall way. Right, right, right. So it's a choose whether you want to herd cats or steer glaciers. Those are my my those are my analogies in terms of the of the pieces of it. So then then you start getting and this is getting into the Rob Dykert psyche a little bit more because you use the term and if I mispronounce it I apologize but Yubitsumi. Yes. I said that right? Okay, that's I think so. I think so. I, all right, we'll go with we'll go with that cuz that doesn't happen. So just so you know, I don't correct, say things correctly the first time. So so explain to me what that term means and and then of course we'll just all look at you and judge why these things are something known to you. Go ahead. Yeah. So going back to my colorful stories, right? But but the the you know, the, the yakuza is like the the and I'm not an expert on Yakuza, so please, if someone has better intel, tell me. But then there's this, they have this tradition called Yubitsumi, where like, if you screw up, you actually cut off your own finger, part of your own finger as kind of atonement to, the, to your club or gang or whatever, you know, that you, you messed up. So my point there is, is that, you know, this is a pandemic, right? You're, how far you can see out is, is radically reduced, right? It's like driving in fog with your high beams on or a heavy snowstorm, right? It like makes it worse when you try to, when you put on the high beams, it's actually worse, right? Than when you put your low beams. So you got to turn on your low beams. And then once you turn your low beams on, then you've got to really get radically focused with whoever's promising the revenue. Hey, like if we miss this, we're literally starting to cut off pieces of our fingers, Right. So it is a constraint-based optimization problem. And guess what? You only have five fingers, right? You should have two hands, but you know, the question is like, do you get to use both hands? So that's where when you're like saying, hey, we're going to build this new product or we need to do this, like, all right, like really, like we have to really get crystal clear on who's it getting sold to? How long is the, because I've seen things built and no one realized it's a six month sales cycle, right? So they think, oh, we build this, it delivers and we have all this revenue right away. I'm like, no, 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 you got to go sell this. So so this is where you just kind of get laser focused on everyone's got to be as honest and conservative as possible in their projections because 
if you miss, off comes part of your finger. Not literally, but like. But, uh, but I was like, going to ask for that, that clarification. Company. So. Okay. I was going to ask for that clarification and just, yes, I want you to tell me, look me right now and tell me none of the people have ever worked for you have had to cut off their finger. I, none of them have had to cut off their fingers. Yeah. Alexander, hold your hands up. Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> you only held up, held up one hand. That's why I was like really kind of nervous with that. With that. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, and again, there's, I love, I love the, the, the thought. And again, it's like getting to that crystal clearer. This is how we're operating right now. Right. You just can't, you just can't kind of float by. And think about it. If you if you actually make the if it was you if it was either make a mistake or, or get it right or lose your part of your fingers, like obviously that's not going to really happen. But that's how serious this is. Like we need to make sure we have good numbers and good projections. If it's right. a little bit off, like let's just say like, hey, it's half of what the number was. Right. We call for that. And I think that that leads kind of to the last thing. And, and actually, with the with, in the interest of time, I think we're, we're a good spot. By all means, if anyone has any questions, I'd love to, to hear what you have. But it, it really is, okay, you got the right mindset. You've got, you know, you've kind of evaluated a number of ideas. You're starting to kind of do that. But the thing that's always got to be tough on this is prioritization and doing this in kind of real time, making those choices and whatever. Talk about how you how you think through that process to make sure that you're you're hitting on all cylinders when you have to. Sure. So the order matters always, right? And the reality is, is there's always more stuff on the roadmap that you can than you can do in whatever period of time you're t- developing based on. And a lot of times these things are all interrelated, right? So things can build on top of each other. So you know, I, I remember when we were redoing the, the roadmap at iView, we had two things that had to get built and if we built the one thing, it wasn't even usable until we built the second thing. And one was slotted for Q2 and the, and the thing that you needed to make the Q2 thing work was slotted for Q3. But if I had the Q3, Q3 thing done first, it also unlocked four other things. So like you just switch those, right? So the order is really important. And then you have to optimize based on what your constraints are. So if you go back to all those categories I had before for the product roadmap, and you have to put dollars next to them, right? So you know that if you take your arrow spike instance from two down to one, you're going to save this much, you know, AWS costs. Now, maybe you might not because maybe you have an upfront guarantee with them and you have to spend the money, you know, a guarantee capacity or whatever sure. it's called. So you have to also understand like, hey, is this a true cost savings or, or is it kind of funny money or we actually can't realize it? Because if that's the case, sure, I would love $100,000 in savings on a monthly basis, but it's not going to really show up. So maybe I should do this soft cost thing first or this background radiation piece first. So part of it is getting actual dollar values in each one of those on, on the roadmap and by those categories, because then you can kind of start to look and say, okay, well, wait a second. Like, you know, this thing has a high probability of either success or failure or a low probability. It's, you know, expected value is, is it's an expected value issue, but you have this thing that if I fix this, it's guaranteed money in my pocket. And if you are trying to stop your cash burn, then maybe that's what you want to do first, right? So part of it is also, what is your situation as a company? Are you like right. still focused on top line growth? Is margin more important? Is cash conservation? Like all those types of things you have to factor in when you set that order. But one other thing I'll say is really, really important. And going back to that Mendoza line thing earlier, you know, most companies are like stools, right? And if all you do is focus on one leg of the stool and keep adding features and functionality, like the stool becomes unstable and someone falls over. So part of this is like, I think it's really critical to kind of, you know, every segment gets a little bit of love every time because that will also, you know, get people, because everyone's going to, you know, every department that has a wish list, their most important thing goes first. We're never getting to the bottom of the list of any department. But if you don't spread it around, I mean, there's morale issue, there's all types of other like soft cost things that come up. But the reality is I bet you the organization will operate better than you ever thought just because you, you kind of are starting to fix those things across the, the company. Very cool. I wanted to, I, I realized I should have prepped you with this question. It's kind of the last question that doesn't, it's not a trick question. It's just one of those like thought things, which is, you know, you, when you put together content like you did and thanks for sharing it and putting it out there, right? I mean, again, I think that this is creates these kind of conversations that we have to have. I'm sure there's something, a concept or something that kind of fell on the cutting room floor or there's just something that else that you'd like rather elaborate, whether we covered it now or not. Anything that you didn't get to yet, or anything else that you're thinking about in terms of like maybe your next 
articles or the next thing that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Because all these things I think are quasi interrelated, you know, and there's overlap, but definitely like data driven management and, and like how do you do that and attention to detail, I think is important. I think there's also, you know, I definitely have opinions on the ad tech tax and how people <laughs> think about that. I, I hear myself starting to already count the number of other sessions that we need to do on this because I think this is great. Yeah, you know, just on the, the data-driven thing, you know, one of the concepts, I, I threw it out in a meeting as a comment and I wrote it down and I'm going to be writing on this one, which is when, when, when companies use reports as a security blanket, right? It's almost like, and it goes almost like to the alert thing, right? Where it's like, well... I just need a report so I can see how the business is running. And it's like, you're wanting a report, but you're not like, you know, it's, it's just like this part of like, yeah, but I got a report. Yeah. You know, I need the report. I can tell you what's going on, but no, no, no. I want that report. And that, that, that makes that feel like there's a, like you're being a data driven company when you're not. And that's the part. Let's, 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 you know, let's get looker, let's get meta markets, let's get Tableau. And magically, we're going to be data driven, and you you know you do things. And the devil's in the details of making these reports, but also the, the human behavior change that's associated with it to actually leverage them, right? Because you can send these things out, and nobody looks at them, you know. So so there's a, there's a real ownership thing. I think there's a there, there's a, a longer conversation definitely around that piece. I, I'd love to have yeah. that because as, as someone who always winds up being the one who has to create the reports that I know aren't getting read. But somehow just make, if it's not in there, again, it's like right out of that movie office space. It's like, well, and, and the other thing I was thinking of, which going back to New Orleans things, I presented the New Orleans conference and I think it was about ad ops and excellence. So if we can find that deck. We should bring it back and see how much of that stuff is still true today. That might be a fun uh, episode. I remember there's a picture of like people making sausage in a sausage factory. And I was, you know, one of the things like keep the customer out of the sausage factory. They yeah. don't like to see it being made. They just like to eat it cooked and it tastes good. So I will, I will say this as a thought on that is I've gone back to look at the very first ad monsters and seen what saw what the topics were for discussion. And, and part of it was because when we were hitting like our 50th pub forum and these other little celebratory things, like look how far we've come. And you're like, Hate to break to everybody, but we're still talking about how to work with sales, uh, reporting, operate, you know, all these things. So uh, we've got a, we've got a ways to go. So, Robert, thanks. Thank you so much for, for this and a great conversation. Thank and thanks, everyone, for giving us a, an hour of your time. And thanks for all the comments and, and questions and things like that. Good stuff. We'll, uh, I got a nice. feeling we're going to do this again. So, and Rob, you're gonna po- you're gonna record this and post it, right? So it is, it is being recorded, and I'll post it. Make sure we'll put it on YouTube as well as I'll have it on on Beeler Tech for for people to look at as well. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Take care, everyone. Take Stay care. safe. Bye. Bye. Thank you to Rob for that fun conversation. You know, I actually think he sounded pretty sincere when he said he hadn't cut off anyone's fingers to date. If you like what you heard. Please subscribe to the podcast and please create an account on Peeler.tech to keep up on all the industry leading shenanigans we're putting together. Thank you for listening this far, mom. And I'm sorry for swearing, mom. I'm, I'm not really dealing, mom. I'm not dealing with the, mom, it's an analogy or a metaphor or something. Mom, I know I should know the difference between an analogy and a metaphor. Mom, mom, listen, I'm just trying to get this podcast done. Mom, mom, mom. Bah, Peeler out.